You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Amen. Well, we are in a teaching series called A Time of Renewal. A Time of Renewal, where we're looking at how God is renewing us as a church in this cultural moment at this time. This will lead us up to Easter. And really, there's two tracks. I've been talking about two tracks of this. The first track is on Sundays, looking at how God is renewing the church for the renewal of LA. How do we be the church in this cultural moment, in this city at this time? And then secondly, midweek, we've been looking, if you've been coming to any of our gatherings midweek, we've been looking at how God is calling us to give that we may expand our uh, campus here, that we may actually renew it and expand it for increased mission in our city. And if you haven't really been to any of those meetings, uh, then check one of them out or go online to our website and you'll see the message there. But this morning, we want to continue talking about how God is renewing us for the renewal of LA, that we are living in a unique cultural moment, that every church and every generation has to look at exactly how God is using us and shaping us to meet the needs of the city and meet the needs of proclaiming Jesus in, the, in our particular context. So this morning we're looking at one particular aspect of who God is calling us to be and that is around this word, belief, a renewed belief, that God is calling his church in such a time as this to renew our commitment to the gospel, to renew our faithfulness to orthodoxy, to renew our confidence in the truth of Jesus Christ in the midst of a sea of rethinking, of doubting, of cynicism, of re-examining and redefining that God is calling us as his people to be faithful to the gospel that we may help the lost, the lapsed, the losing their faith and those deconstructing. I grew up in the church in the north of England and that culture was very atheistic. All of my friends were not Christians. I knew a few Christians at church, but most of my friends thought believing in Jesus was irrational. They would say things like, I believe in science, not faith, and all religions are the same. How could a God of love allow so much suffering? Great questions. Belief seemed irrational to my friends. Then in my mid-20s, I went through my own crisis of belief. I grew up in a Christian home. I had a faith with Jesus, I'd had encounters with Jesus, but some things happened very painfully in my experience of church that caused me to have a crisis of faith. My questions were different to my friend's questions. My questions were things like, does God really answer prayer? How do I know it's God's voice versus my own projection? How can I trust the Bible where it's contains so much strange and oftentimes morally dubious things. Is Jesus who he says he is? How can Christianity be good? Have you looked at the church? These were my challenges. 
And I remember in my mid-twenties being in London working there, and there became a particular moment, I, I still remember this moment, it was an evening, midweek, I was walking around central London, confused, disappointed, disillusioned, wondering about my faith, and I remember going into Leicester Square, tourists everywhere, and there was a carousel in the middle. And so being kind of the, kind of the emo sad moment I was, I paid my little ticket to get on the carousel. <laughs> and as I was going around on the carousel, I remember thinking, I'm done. And I got off that horse, done with Jesus, done with church. I said, I can't believe anymore. Now this is many of your story that you've lived in the past and maybe living now. And certainly the story of our city. We're living in a post-Christian culture where the majority of people in our city and coming to our city would either describe themselves not as Christians, not as followers of Jesus, or maybe used to, but significantly rethinking and deconstructing. And the problem isn't that people are rethinking or not following Jesus because our services aren't fun enough or they're boring or irrelevant. It's certainly not because pastors you know, maybe aren't cool enough. In fact, maybe many of them are too cool. <laughs> Don't worry, that'll never be my problem. No, the real issue is not we need louder music, better lighting, and cooler pastors. The real issue that people have is, I just don't know if I believe it anymore. We're living in a crisis of belief and plausibility. And in our city, people aren't moving away from belief to atheism, they're moving away from belief to syncretism, which is a fancy word for kind of build a bear, build your own spirituality, right? You create your own based on the pick and mix options available. You find bits that resonate with you and you bundle it all together and live out my truth and sometimes it contains a bit of Jesus or as some Sociologists said, most often it contains a twist of Christianity, but the ingredients are something else. How do we be a church in this moment? How do we respond? How do we love people well and help them move from doubt, cynicism or skepticism to confidence and faithfulness and following Jesus? How do we help our loved ones, our children, our parents, our colleagues, discover the goodness and the beauty and the truth of Jesus in a culture of doubt and cynicism? This is not a new question. And we're gonna look at a letter in the Bible called 2 Corinthians, which is Paul's second letter to a church in Corinth Corinth is a city in Greece, about 45 miles away from Athens. And Paul had helped start this church. And then years later, he'd heard that some people had come to the church kind of teaching a different message about Jesus, teaching something that kind of smelt odd, wasn't quite in line. 
And they were having a crisis of belief and theology in the church, and so Paul wrote this letter. And we're gonna see how he encouraged them and therefore how we can be encouraged in our context. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and beginning in verse one. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we do live in the world, we don't wage war as the the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. When faced with teaching that is different to the truth of Jesus Christ, which is different to what's been passed from generation to generation, Paul begins and says, we start this conversation, we start with not coercion, not judgment, not defensiveness. He says, look, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Verse one, let's have it on the screen. Verse one, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Paul responded to those losing their faith or deconstructing their faith or re-examining their faith, not with frustration, not with shaming, not with silence, but with appeal, with gentleness, with humility. You see, in my experience and of myself and, and most others who are going through a crisis of faith or rediscovering or rethinking their faith or losing their faith, they're not doing so independently of of pain, of trauma. In fact, it's because of pain, it's because of disillusionment, it's because of disappointment, it's because of hurts that it's triggered a re-examination. And so Paul is sensitive to that as we are to go, people have a journey that we want to hear, that we want to listen to, that we want to honor, that has brought you to this place of profound re-examination. Deconstructing, re-examining your faith is never a choice that we do for funsies. It's something born out of difficulty and pain and disappointment. My rejection of Jesus was because I felt rejected by church. I was disappointed with, God, I did so much for you, how can this have happened to me? And whereas so many I felt rejected by, I had a few friends who did what Paul did and loved me where I was at, appealed to me with humility and gentleness and kindness. We hope our community will always be a place where if you feel that you're not too sure what you believe, that you've got doubts, that you're not too sure if you believe these things anymore, that this space is a place of humility and kindness to you, that your questions are valid, that your questions are born probably out of disillusionment or pain, 
and that we come alongside you and say, that's a great question. And can we help you? But Paul goes on in verse two to say that we equally respond not just with love and humility, but also with faithfulness to the way of Jesus. Faithfulness to the way of Jesus. In verse two, he says, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, which we think is probably because he was pretty unimpressive in person, but he had like lots of gump when he wrote letters. He said, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people, read this, who think that we live by the standards of the world. See, apparently, what was going on in this church was people were coming in confusing people that Jesus really is no different to the world around us. They're kind of all the same thing. That God is love and, hey, we, you know, love is love and we should all be loving and, you know, as long as it feels loving, then you're fine. That there is an aspect of spirituality whenever we are maintaining fidelity to the gospel, that the temptation will be to go, well, hang on a minute, is it really all that different? Is Jesus really not just the same as other forms of spirituality? See, Paul's not using the word world negatively here in an angry posture against the world. He's just going, look, no, the world, in other ways, what the culture believes and teaches us every minute of the day is very different to Jesus. And we need to maintain that distinctive to understand where sometimes we can be blurred around the edges. But the system of ethics, the system of the big questions of life, the systems and values that undergird why we're here in the world are very different to the ways and teachings of Jesus. And yet, it's so easy to get tempted in a gravitational way in the majority to move towards that. It's so tempting, isn't it, to hear questions and go, you know what, that kind of rings true. Things like, look, I have a relationship with Jesus. I mean, sorry, I have a relationship with God. I don't understand why I need Jesus for that. That's one of the common questions that people come to me with in Los Angeles. Look, I, I have a spiritual life. I don't know why I need Jesus for that. And in fact, if you say I need Jesus, does that invalidate all my spiritual experiences up until this point? This last week, someone said to me, yeah, I hear all the prayer thing, but it sounds to me, it's just, that's just kind of a Christian version of manifesting your destiny. I don't see the difference. And isn't it love, if you say God is love, then isn't love, isn't the truest form of love allowing people to be themselves in every way, to, to be, let them be their authentic selves, not trying to invite them into a different worldview, but actually love them just the way they are. That this whole concept of sin is actually toxic, it's not helpful. See, on the surface, people in Corinth were going, hmm, hmm, good point. And Paul comes in and goes, oh, okay, let's not lose the clarity of, yes, there's lots of interesting thoughts here, but Jesus taught something very distinct. And we can never lose what Jesus says. 
And in that sense, Paul goes on and says something which is language we struggle with, but I'll explain it. He says in verse three, we are to wage war with the world, not be kind of conformed to it. I hate war language because it reminds me of Christians who coerce other people, who kind of take political power for the sake of their worldview, which is something Jesus did not do. And that was my experience of an abuse of authority that actually caused me to leave the church. So I have a little trigger with war language. But it helps me to realize, Paul explains, look, when he's talking about war, he's not talking about war with people. In fact, he starts with, we need to be kind and humble with people. He says in verse five, no, the war is with arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive, not people, but thoughts. And then to try and actually turn them to obedience in Christ. See, Paul is saying, we cannot be indifferent to these other thoughts that dilute the message of the gospel. We love everyone passionately as God loves us. But because we love people, we cannot be indifferent. We cannot be lukewarm at these pretense ideas, at these ideologies that actually sound kind of nice, but eventually as you dig deeper, will drag people away from Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to war against that because I think the stakes are that high. Fidelity to Jesus and the gospel is not an agree-to-disagree kind of loving conversation. For Paul, it's not inconsequential philosophical niceties. It's a matter of eternity. It's a matter of life. It's a matter of death. See, people say to me, yeah, oh my, particularly when I left my career in like early 30s and I said I'm going to be a pastor, I had friends take me out for lunch, clients took me out for lunch, and I thought it was a nice thank you lunch uh, for all that you've done, but actually I realized after 10 minutes of the conversation, the lunch was not a thank you lunch, it was an intervention lunch. (laughs) Where clients would go, we kind of knew you went to church, but what are you doing? You don't really believe this, do you? But Paul and humbly, I share that conviction that we really believe that God became flesh in Jesus. And it's in Jesus we discover the reality of who God is. We really believe that Jesus dealt with humanity's greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death on the cross, and the resurrection proved it worked. We really believe that Jesus came out of his love to bring us home from our rebellion, and our decision whether to accept that invitation has eternal consequences. We really believe that the way of Jesus and his teaching is to be the most compelling and true vision of life. We really believe that Jesus' teaching, that we were created with meaning and purpose and significance and a vocation to bring heaven to the streets of our city, to see love and grace and justice fight evil and pain. And that vocation, we are to be held accountable to that. We really believe that Jesus is the king of the universe and one day he will return to finally finish the healing job that he began on the cross and resurrection and bring judgment to the gross evil and injustice in this world. We really believe these things. And diluting the gospel is never a big deal. Diluting who Jesus is is a really big deal. 
Just changing things because we're not quite uncomfortable with it is a really big deal. That's why Paul, when he writes his letters to the church of the first century, almost every letter except one is him waging war against false teaching to protect the truth of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read some for you. I mean, this guy doesn't hold back. He loves people, but he doesn't hold back against the destructive ideologies themselves. Look at this in Galatians chapter one, verse six. He says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter four, he says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. What a great call for us today. A clear mind, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Maintaining faithfulness to the gospel will include hardship. And do the work of, of an evangelist, which is simply helping people explore Jesus faithfully and discharging your duties of your ministry. In 1 Corinthians 15, he goes to the heart of the matter. If you start to fudge Jesus or dilute him and say, hey, he was a good man, but didn't really, I don't think he rose from the dead. He says, look, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you, because you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Jesus are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. And then finally, Jude. A short letter he wrote to Jude and his friends. He said, dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people in fact they don't teach the ways of God who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. As it was then, so it is now. This is our cultural moment. This is our city. When people are confused about Jesus, tempted away with other ideologies, kind of not too sure about whether Jesus stacks up. And importantly, Paul goes on and says, in response to these things, he says, we do not wage war like the world wages war. We do have to confront these ideologies that take away people's faith. But what he means by this is we don't wage war like the world. And if you think of the world at that time, the Roman Greek culture, what he's saying is we don't wage war like that. We don't come with violence or political coercion or moral superiority or anger or arrogance or fearful defensiveness of taking back our country or social media outbursts. This is not the way of Jesus. We don't wage war like that. We're not fearful people. We're not angry people. 
He says we wage war with divine power, which is like the way of Jesus. And if you want alternative words for the way of Jesus that populate everything we do, even with people who disagree with the way of Jesus, the words that resemble how we do everything are the words of Jesus in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Oh, I wish the church of Jesus Christ over the last four years would have acted like Jesus Christ. Would have said, we're gonna post comments on social media which are kind and gentle. We're gonna treat others with respect and love. Have you noticed, no one changes their opinion by shouting louder at them. And yet our church is so locked into, the church in our country is so fearful and it's so attuned to the ways of the world that we seek to gain control through coercion rather than through the ways of Jesus. What I want to do as we kind of look towards the future is how do we as a church in Los Angeles respond to these questions of our faith, questions that people have about Jesus, people wanting to dilute orthodoxy and move away from the historic faith. I want to tell you about my journey of what helped me and what I give my life to. I had people come into my life and help me back to find Jesus. And it was through a a non-linear journey through various steps. And I kind of want to talk about those very briefly now. And this is how we roll at Vintage. I'm calling it Seven Marks of Renewing Belief. And the first is love. Love. I've said that already, but love. Do you realize God loves non-Christians just as much as Christians? It's amazing how the church got that wrong. God loves non-Christians so much before before anyone liked him, he died for us. If you're here this morning thinking, I'm not too sure what I believe about God and not sure I like God, he loves you. And we are called to love you too. And here's the thing, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, he loved people regardless of whether they followed him or not. There's nothing worse than love being conditional. And again, the church, for some reason, gets that wrong. That we are to love our city. It's funny, I won't go on, read the gospels, they're amazing. (laughs) The biographies of Jesus, I read them and go, man, I want God to be like you. Oh, you are God, because he's so amazing. And when you're far from him, he doesn't love you any less than if you're close to him. And so should we. Secondly, show that there is reason behind and plausibility to believing in Jesus. This was my battle 
with my atheist friends and also my own deconstruction of does this stack up? Is this myth, is this legend? What about science? What about evolution? What about the Old Testament? What about genocide in the, in the story of Jericho? Like you read it, Christians, as a story of the power of worship. I read it like you just killed lots of people, right? Is it plausible that God would become flesh? Is it plausible that he died and rose again? I, did, I'm, I was a lawyer for many years. I do not believe in blind leaps of faith. I wanted evidence, and Jesus profoundly gives us evidence. One of my favorite things, and I think arguably the best thing I do here at Vintage is not on Sundays. You're going, clearly, I hope. Um, it's on Tuesday nights. We run something called Alpha, which is how I came back to faith. It's a series of evenings that help confused, hurt, wounded, skeptical people go on a journey to explore Jesus without any agenda for outcome. And I went on that, and one of the best things we do, it starts at seven o'clock, we have dinner together in groups, there's about two, 300 people, and then we kind of listen to a talk uh, about Jesus, then discuss it in our groups. But then my highlight of the whole evening is at nine o'clock, where the pub opens, but that's not the highlight. The pub opens. But then you can either go get a drink at the pub and make friends, or join me in a different room. We call it Q&R with Gare. Ask me anything about your skeptic, your skeptic questions, your doubts, your concerns. And every, every Tuesday night at nine o'clock during Alpha, I get a stack of index cards. And we just, with the microphone, we just work through them together. What about other religions? Why do I need Jesus for a relationship with God? What about my spiritual experiences without Jesus? What about science and evolution? What about reincarnation? What about slavery in the Old Testament? What about women being oppressed by the church? What, what about, what about, what about? And I love every single question and together, it's not Q&A, it's Q&R, because I just go, look, these are great questions. Here's what I found in my journey. That may not convince you, but I found the way of Jesus in all of these things really plausible and actually really compelling, and actually something I can trust in. But more than the plausibility around the questions, we have to show, once again, that there's plausibility around the way of Jesus. That actually, the way of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, following Jesus actually does make sense of our lives. It makes sense of our hearts. It makes sense of ethics that feel deep down within us not an option. He does fulfill the longing we have for meaning and significance and joy. And his ways and his life do lead to goodness and beauty and truth in the world. Jesus is amazingly compelling and plausible. Next is, what helped me was also examine lovingly, with humility, to lovingly question the plausibility of the world's worldview. When I was rejecting God and Jesus, I adopted whatever the syncretistic ideals of the world were, right? Just got on with leisure, pleasure, treasure, having fun. I had the money to do so, and it was lots of fun. But I remember, I also thought, hey, I'm, a, I'm an evidenced, data-driven guy, so I'm gonna actually do my own little quantitative reasoning around whether this is a better way of life than Jesus. And so I put a chart on my wall in my bedroom 
and I put down kind of vec- like criteria of happiness and love and other, you know, other thought, you know, thoughtfulness for others and contentment and things like this. I put them down and out of 10, every day I put a grid and every, out of 10 every day I'd put kind of my score. And I thought it's gonna be so good because I'm gonna prove with data that I don't need Jesus. Problem was after about a month, it was depressing every night <laughs> because my numbers were getting lower and lower. And whatever I did, I'd go, okay, tomorrow. I remember thinking, okay, the numbers are getting lower. I must do something else. I must kind of have more fun or I must have more better friends or I started to do more charity work. And all of that was good. But I sensed the inner vacuum never being filled. And I think it's helpful lovingly to help people realize that the philosophies of today, the ideologies of today, the, the kind of the truth of today about you do you, Ethics are defined by your own personal happiness. Live your authentic truth. That actually, intellectually and experientially and relationally, they leave a lot to be desired. They actually don't stack up. They never have. These philosophies have been around for centuries. And they've never actually worked. They've always been found wanting. And I say that not to be arrogant, but to go, eventually you're going to realize like me, that they're not the answer. They don't actually contribute macro to human society flourishing. And we rediscover the plausibility of Jesus. Fourthly, establish or reestablish trust in the Bible. A lot of the questions that we have today in our context are distrust of the Bible for all sorts of ways, and I love those conversations, and I had distrust of the Bible. But I found that actually my distrust of the Bible was because I really didn't understand the Bible well at all. And to actually go on a journey of discovering how to read the Bible in a way that the Bible wants to be read. According to genre, according to the intent of the author, all these things, to, to look at actually lots of the things I thought, oh, what about that in the Bible, had really good reasons why it wasn't as bad as I thought. In fact, it was different to what I thought. Genesis 1 and 2 is like, ah, lots of Christians disagree on that. It's not a primary issue. I'm reading a really great book right now. I, I'm addicted to all books about all of these things. I just got a new book, which I'm starting to love, and it's by a guy called Dan Kimball. It's on the screen here. And it says, um, how not to read the Bible, making sense of, of the anti-women, anti-science, pro-violence, pro-slavery, and other crazy-sounding parts of Scripture. And I think many of us have come, what I would call from a fundamentalist background, who generally, not all, but generally dishonored the Bible in how it should be, not taken it seriously enough in how it should be read and actually how when we read the Bible it was meant to be read, how it's always been historically read up until kind of the last 100 years, we discover the Bible is beautiful, it makes sense, it's one cohesive story leading to Jesus. It's not the horror show that we thought it was. Fifthly, separating primary from secondary issues. Because this country has been mostly about fighting denominationalism, about, sadly, which denomination is better. 
then what has happened over the years is the, the secondary issues of the gospel, the issues that we all kind of, the Bible's unclear on, we kind of solidified to be the markers of distinction between denominations, and therefore we kind of made them primary instead of secondary. And then people are starting to go, well, you can't be a Christian without this particular interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2. You can't be a Christian unless you have this particular view of X, Y, Z, or the end times. And historically, people are going, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. The Bible is really clear about orthodoxy, the fundamentals of the gospel. We should never waver on those. But the rest, guys, Christians and faithful Christians have always disagreed on. And we'll probably get to heaven and sit down with Jesus and go, okay, tell us. <laughs> but to make those secondary issues primary will push people away. What are those primary issues? Well, they have been passed down as historical orthodoxy, not only about the belief in Jesus, but how we live and ethics. These are primary issues that have never been uncontroversial as the main teachings of Jesus. And the challenge has been, if I may humbly suggest that, many conservatives, conservative churches, add to orthodoxy and say you have to believe more than orthodoxy. And many progressives say you, have to be, you can believe less than orthodoxy. And we're in this battle between no more and no less. And clearly we want to believe in what historically has been, these are the foundations of our faith. Sixthly, we have to call out the church where the church has got it wrong. We have to call out the church. I was devastated. I left the church because it was a mess and lots of things were covered up. Lots of stuff were not called out. But we have to call out false teaching, as Paul does. We have to call out and explain why churches behave badly because we're a hospital for sinners we're here because we know we're broken and we need help. And therefore, sometimes that brokenness can leak out. And we don't actually deal with that when it happens, call it out when it happens. It's devastating what's happened with pastors around the country not living to the high standards of following Jesus. The beautiful, good, ethical standards of Jesus and more chasing, consumeristic greed, etc., etc. We have to call it out because the church, the, non-Christian world is going, why would I follow that Jesus if I end up like you? If you look at the politics of the last four years, most of the non-Christians have seen most of the ugliness by Christians fighting one another. We've got to call that out. That's not the way of Jesus. And then finally, we have to invite people and help people taste and see that the Lord is good. See, we can have intellectual, rational, plausible arguments, and I love that. I do believe that the gospel of Jesus actually stacks up and holds weight intellectually, historically, philosophically, emotionally, and relationally. I radically believe I came back to Jesus because he made sense of the world and he made sense of me. But more than that, I also could encounter and experience him and I could taste and see that he is good. A church that allows people in, not only to question, but also to experience. To come forward for prayer ministry. I don't know what you believe, but if you're sick, let me pray for you. As Jesus did. 
If you're anxi- full of anxiety and struggle, let us pray for you, want to surround you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's why Jesus went around doing miracles. There weren't agendas to believe. It's because he just loved people. It's why John called them signs and wonders because a wonder makes you wonder. What was that? That's why Paul says we need the divine power of Christ because actually what often breaks through to people is an experience of the power of Jesus Christ that then rests on the plausibility of Jesus Christ and comes together to believe and have faith. Do you know what the best way we can give people a taste of Jesus Christ in our city in this cultural moment is being a church that is faithful to Jesus and lives like him. That is uncompromising in this is the way of Jesus together. This is how he has designed the world and humanity to flourish. This is how he brings his life to all of us. This is why he came and what life eternal lives for him. But not only this is our belief, but this is how we live together. We live together in community. We live together in grace for one another. We forgive each other, even our enemies. We put our, our own money, our bodies, and our power, not at the service of our own self-interest, but for others. We remain faithful in relationships and marriages, even when it's hard. And we stand together and care for and lift up the weary and the least and the lost in our city. Paul says, if you want to reach a city with the good news of Jesus, whatever context you're in, the best thing you can be is be like him, with him. Be the aroma of Jesus. This is who we're called to be. Uncompromising to fidelity to Jesus maintaining the fundamentals of the historic faith, but lovingly helping everyone explore, re-explore, and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's stand together. I'd love you to take out your communion cups. And this meal, Jesus says, I want you to do this meal a lot because it reminds us of two things. It reminds us, first of all, that our faith is based on historic reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's not a personal, subjective faith. This is reality in a sea of questioning. And then secondly, this reality has power. Because when we feed on Christ, we remember that he's with us. In all situations, we know his presence. That eating and drinking is symbolic of he is with us and in us. The resurrected Jesus. So let's take the bread side and peel off the top. It's gluten free, we can relax. But church, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. That on the night he suffered and was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks and he broke it 
and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Let's take the grape juice. After supper, he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, as we take this bread and wine, we recenter our lives on the foundation of the historic reality of our faith. The birth, death, death and resurrection of Jesus that God incarnate came to bring us home. And we follow you in your ways, align our lives around your presence, your ways, that we may bring glory to you with our whole selves. And as we eat and drink of this, Lord, we pray that you would fill us all again with your presence, God with us, our hope in all circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna just sing one final song together. We do have our prayer team down the front. I love the prayer team to come up. If you are in any need this morning, if you're sick, if you're hurting, if you're lost, if you're questioning, we'd love to pray for you. God turns up. You can taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, we pray beforehand and there's some people our prayer team felt we particularly wanna pray for. Maybe God gave us a burden of those carrying heaviness. Someone lost a job and a loss of a loved one, and someone called Stacy. Uh, but if that's not you, then come forward. We want to pray for you as well. But let's worship and recenter our lives around the goodness of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.